0: Ask you what you wanted to be called, Anthony or Tony? I thought as long as I didn't call you Steve, that would be fine. But <laughs>
1: it's okay, I'm used to Steve. By uh... oh god, <laughs> I,
0: I remember him from football sticker books. I'm just about the age uh, where I remember the not the start of the Premier League, but the kind of '95 six. So you'd, right. re- you'd retired by the time I was conscious of what Tottenham Hotspur was. <laughs> okay. So, sorry to do that, but what age did you teach?
1: Well, I'm, I'm still teaching now, so I, I mainly teach, like, 10-year-olds, 10, 11-year-olds. Great. So, I've got those children I've taught who I now uh, like, friends on Facebook, and they've got children who are in their, sort of, teens now, so... Jesus. Yeah. I said so the next pupil who, who became a teacher at my school. Oh, no. As well. Oh, yeah, so that was strange.
0: I could have gone into teaching, but I lacked the patience and the wherewithal. Uh, So, all power to you for teaching. And 10 is a difficult age. (laughs) 10 is tough. Yeah, it's not too... I did a little bit of secondary, and that was tough. (laughs) That was really tough.
1: I was teaching maths to, like, 15, 16-year-olds who just knew they couldn't do maths and didn't want to be there, and that was tough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but they have to, because it's the numeracy. Uh, You have to do maths until 15. Gosh. Well, it's a good thing you've got your six GCSEs. So means you can write, and this book is brilliant. Thank you for writing it, and it was very useful uh, to read it. Depressing in parts, but fortunately there there was enough laughter to make up for it. Tony Potts is the author of Losing My Spurs, Gaza, The Grief and The Glory, which came out, as we speak, yesterday. So have people come back to you and read it so far? Um, I've had a couple of people. I've had... um the daughter
1: of one of the people I wrote about in the book who, unfortunately, um, he'd passed away and, and she found out things about him that she didn't know kind of things. So that was really nice. Ah.
0: I won't ask you who it was, but the, the cast of characters in this book, not just the one in the t- title and the one who's written this book, is pertinent to me because I'm just about to finish my book on the FA Youth Cup. And right. not just you, 1990 FA Youth Cup winning striker... Anthony as you were then Potts um but other players that we'll we'll talk about in the next hour but this is a man I th- I think you should have led um in the book with how you finish it because if this sentence doesn't make anyone quit what they're doing uh this is the one where you hear on the radio that several people you know have been called up for England this must have been god 93 or 94
1: yeah but that 93 94 yes
0: yeah and England hadn't qualified for the World Cup, possibly because you weren't playing in the qualifiers. Um, but a couple of lads who, who did and would go on to play at Euro 96 were there. So, do you remember the four names you heard on the radio that fateful day when you decided to pack it in?
1: Um, probably, yes, yeah, just about, I think. Um, there's a few choices after that. I'm, I'm thinking Paul Gascoigne, probably Ian Walker, yep. Jamie Redknapp, Nick Bambi. Hey, if Nicky I had to...
0: Yeah, so I came to football after you'd retired and you uh, went into teacher training. Did you do the PGCE yeah. across a year?
1: No, I actually went, um, it, it took me five years to become a teacher. I had to, th- At the time, they'd just dropped the quick courses, so I had to do like four years. I had to do a access course first as well, so it took me five years to get qualified.
0: Goodness me, yes, access fills in the gaps between GCSE and undergraduate. I had a friend at university, who's now a very good archer or is involved in the British archery lot. And she, I didn't know anything about that um, because I went to one of these posh private schools that trained you to go to one of the big universities. I went up to Edinburgh. And so when I was watching English football at the time, it was like watching the Premier League in a foreign country, which it was. Um, And I sort of want to go backwards in time here and you tell it going yeah. forwards, but you've got Gaza, the grief and the glory. So we'll cover that in the next hour. It is quite a sensational piece of literature, especially about the nature of the apprenticeship just before the First Division turned into the Premier League. But before I do anything else, uh, I must give you the cards to the football library because that's where we are. Uh, I've spoken to, among other people, the limping physio. He popped by to, oh, okay, with, with his book. John gets a mention in this book. Uh, losing my Spurs. If you were to put a football figure from your life onto your library card as a kind of image, would it be Paul? Would it be Jamie Redknapp? Would it be Kenny Sampson's calves? What would you put on it? <laughs>
1: oh, it's a difficult one. Probably, probably um, Paul Gascoigne, I would imagine, would, would still be the one
0: who kind of captured my imagination the most out of everybody. And Paul has Gaza, but I guess we'll... we'll Refer to him as Paul. I asked John, first of all, do we call him Gazza or do we call him Paul? And he said, well, he's Paul. Um, and John had his stories. And you kind of play a walk-on cameo role. If the movie of Paul Gascoigne's life is made, I hope we see the scenes where you go and see Gazza in hospital and Mel Stein tries to pin the blame on you for the ac- the second accident. Because... That's like a Guy Ritchie yeah. scene. It's horrible. Do you remember feeling it was, what you felt? Well,
1: yeah. Well, at first I came in and I can remember sort of laughing because obviously as I walked in they, they kind of said that um, it was my fault, the whole incident was my fault and that lawyers were getting involved. But when they first started saying it, I took it as thinking it was a joke and I was waiting for everyone to sort of laugh and smile as you do and I kind of did a nervous laugh myself and then nobody laughed. No one cracked a smile at all. Like, I can remember sort of turning to face um, like Gazza and trying to get a bit of sort of help from him. And he just looked at me in a really scared kind of look on his face, which then made me think it was all actually true. And I can just remember just, kind of, I didn't know what to say. I was lost for words. I was kind of stuttering a little bit. And then all of a sudden everyone burst out laughing and I realised I'd been set up kind of thing.
0: I don't think any other, although saying that Maradona was pretty um, chaotic... I think we can say about Diego and about Paul. But Paul has so many flaws, but that's what makes millions of people love him. There's this episode in the Gallowgate end, which leads to uh, the incident that puts Paul in hospital again in 1992. And Newcastle really were not brilliant at the, the time, 1991, 1992. <clears throat> so Paul and you went up to Newcastle to see his family. Who, are you still in contact with his family, if not with Paul?
1: No, no, not, not really. It's kind of that thing of, it's a football thing, I guess, where when you kind of leave and go somewhere else, you, you kind of, you don't always keep in touch with people. You just tend to sort of move on to the next team kind of thing. So I didn't really keep in touch with many people from Tottenham. I've got I've caught up more people now with sort of the event of Facebook and things like that, yeah. but yeah, not, not really kept in touch with people otherwise.
0: There was that film, My Week with Marilyn, where a guy was an extra... I think, or a co-cast member on a film with Marilyn Monroe and turned it into a book, which got turned into a film. So this would be a really good story as well. It would mean you'd have to film at St. James's Park uh, and the, the new owners would probably want the publicity. But you've got this... You described the whole Gallo just turning around and singing songs about Paul, taking their eye off the game. Obviously, Paul had been British famous for two years at that point. So this was just before he went to Italy. He was recovering from his injury and you famously were... In the with uh, training with him, you were competing. You were Gaza's kind of morale booster while he was recuperating, and he was yours. That's correct.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the Newcastle one. The thing I remember most about it was the fact that it was fairly empty the stadium because they weren't doing very well. It was like not the best of times in their history, kind of thing. And the only packed place was immediately behind the goal, so where we were sort of standing to the side of the goal. We, it was sparse. There was just a handful of people ab- about us. So it was the contrast where it kind of... One minute, it was just us standing by ourselves. And then the next minute, it just there was now no one behind the goal. Everyone had moved over to the side where we were.
0: Because they were trying to bask in the glow of a guy who was, and you say this and it's been said before, the last of the Mavericks, Paul Gascoigne. Um, I was talking with a guy called George Scott who said there could never be another Tommy Case kind of hard man centre midfielder because he wouldn't last, at least in the elite level. Yeah. I've heard it said that Phil Foden is perhaps the closest to Gascoigne, not just with the bleached hair, but with the way that he looks like a street footballer. A lot has changed, and we'll talk about Bosman shortly, but if you were playing elite football today, you would have, you would have loved it. You'd, you'd be one of the top strikers in Britain.
1: Well, it, it, would, have suit, it would have suited me more, definitely. I think my strengths were... With the ball at my feet and that kind of thing. So, the protection you get now compared to the protection you got then would have definitely helped me a lot more. I was sort of, I played with them back to goal quite a lot, and it was in the age still where the first thing a centre half would do, and you knew it would happen, was in the first 10 minutes, they would come straight through the back of you to let you know that, that you're there. And most times, the referee would just give them a little bit of a talking to, and that would be their first warning. So, Playing with you back to goal, you're just used to that kind of thing happening. Whereas I think now, sometimes that first tackle could be a off even.
0: I will always remember seeing Watford Leicester, two teams which have both sacked Claudio Ranieri as of yesterday. Maguire, Harry Maguire got booked after about ninety seconds, and he played the whole like, played the whole game on a yellow card. Uh, and I think Leicester lost that game. Uh, but Maguire looks like a top centre back. The Top, top teams, and they include your old club, Tottenham, and the club that you used to support, Arsenal. When you heard about the Super League last year, as someone who played in an era where the money wasn't there as well, and the Bosman ruling hadn't come in, nothing surprises you, or were you surprised?
1: Um, I, I, was, I was shocked when it actually happened, because I, I kind of felt that um, these, the, the, the owners of the teams, how they were being run, and even the leagues to an extent, was kind of forgetting where what football, what, what I believed football always was. You know, like the, your whole family was involved in it and the, the whole neighbourhood around the ground was involved in it and it was kind of part of everybody's life. And it was, sort of, I've always thought it was starting to get more like a business and sort of, sort of pricing those families out of it. But it, I felt that was just a step too far. You know, it was, it was that kind of thing where you felt that that was happening, that they were taking it away from being like the people's game and such. And you, you kind of got, you thought that the Premier League had gone a little bit too far, but by doing that, it was kind of them just saying yes, it, it has. It was you know it's just confirming your, the inklings that you had, and I just think it just went against everything that I really think that football is. So I, I was still shocked by it. I couldn't. I was I was amazed that they actually went that far, mm. took that step, especially the English clubs. I could see in different countries, particularly I'm, I'm working in China now, so a lot of the football community in China are. From all around the world, and they support teams in England, and they don't really get that because they see they see it in their countries. That it's not like that. It's not such a community sport. So I just thought when it happened, I so wanted everybody to kind of come together like they did and just say, "No, we're not having it." I almost felt kind of um, a tinge of nostalgia when I saw when I heard it happen. I kind of felt like it was English football standing up and saying, "No, you know, we're not having that. That's not what that's not what this is. You don't get this."
0: this is the story of the decade, the contrast between someone who was raised, well, we got the legacy fans, but someone who was raised in the 80s going and paying on the gate. I mean, you talk brilliantly about in your early life. I think your dad took you to every London ground throughout a season and you could yeah. just turn up on the day and you just... Yeah. its And also, very weird, that you started off as Arsenal and you got bored of 1-0 to the Arsenal and switched to Tottenham. Congratulations. But... <laughs> when, but that didn't hold because that team. You saw that team. You're in this weird situation where you were there when that team in the mid '80s broke up um, and became. You remember Jose Dominguez, Jose Dominguez. He played for Tottenham yeah, late '90s. About. Yeah, and yeah. Goran Bongevic as well. These kind of function yeah. passed away. I think uh, these functional players, and that was definitely because of the owner. Tottenham had set in motion in the 80s with Irving Scholar, whom you must have met. Yes, yes. They set in motion football as a PLC. Lord Sugar came in with his blowing out the water, which you detail in the book. And then came Bosman. And the ultimate tragedy of this book, Losing My Spurs, is that the Bosman ruling wasn't brought in and the three foreigner rule wasn't scrapped until the mid-90s. So you were a man out. You'd retired by that time. So... Had you come along a few years later, even, you might have been able to be in control of your career in a way that you weren't so much.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was it was a strange time where the clubs could have a kind of a hold on you past, past your contract and past what you weren't. And some players took advantage of that um, to kind of stay at clubs that they wanted to be at, but without necessarily having the ambition to really... You know, become the top player at that club, or or maybe develop like they quite could. They were just happy to be a a, a great club and getting their money and having all the facilities and things. But it it did mean that for some players, you were just completely caught in limbo. You just had you you had all the power taken away from you, and even right up to the last last minute, the club could still go. Actually, we're going to give you an extra year, and you kind of just had to go. Well, okay. I think it was as long as they matched it, or it might have been they had to slightly increase it. As long as they did that, your wages, then you had to sign the contract.
0: This was the retain and transfer system. Uh, Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Which was brought in. Uh, You say the system was rigged against the player. Whereas today, and I write about this in the Youth Cup book, club has gone way beyond country. Not just because Alex Ferguson didn't like his player's Playing for he stopped him. He stopped Ryan Giggs playing in friendlies for Wales for ten years until Mark Hughes was yeah. manager of Wales. But it was, and you you make it absolutely clear pre Bosman that it was not slave to it, but the contract ruled, and so you were indentured servants.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, and it was, and no one was in it was in any doubt about it. Well, it wasn't like a secret; like you just knew that that was what was happening, and you kind of just saw people going through it. and Everyone just. Accepted that that was the case, and particularly you know with injuries and things like that as well. Where when people were getting over injuries and you need to be playing matches, but you couldn't get out to anyone, you couldn't say, "Well, I'm just going to set up my contract and I'm going to go to another club and I'll start again," kind of thing. Because clubs didn't want to lose players as well. They were always a little bit scared of that if they did let you go, then you could do sort of a, a Brian Robson or a Peter Beardsley or. A, David Plathos, you know, these players who sort of dropped down the leagues and then came back to kind of embarrass their old teams, so clubs would just kind of hang on to players but not really invest in them anymore, they they would just there was, even when I was at Spurs there was like 50, 60 professional footballers there, and two teams, so you would have you know 15 people every week who just weren't playing a game, and these were top, top players, like very, very talented footballers, but who just never got that opportunity and never got that push. But then they weren't allowed to then go off and sort of rebuild their career because the clubs were were just that little bit scared that it was going to come back and sort of sting them in the towel a little bit.
0: And on a completely unrelated note, in 1991, Tottenham had to sell the crown jewels to survive. And I I completely forgot, they were in such big peril. So they floated on the stock market as well. Did you have a share?
1: There was talk of it at the, at the time that they was going to do some stuff with the players where well, you did, but no, no, didn't mm. get
0: anything. Yeah, you just got a new contract every July. Uh, we'll talk about the glory more <laughs> in the, the second half of this show. Losing My Spurs, Gazza, who is on your football library card, Tony Potts, the grief and the glory. It's quite nice that there are all these police sirens passing the window. I don't know if they come through on <laughs> the recording, but I'll leave them in because uh, that's what you heard. The grief part of the book. Yeah. Well, and before we talk about your injury, there are two or three figures who have passed on in uh, since you were at Tottenham. Ray Clements, who was your reserve coach and had an infectious yeah. love of football. And Justin Edinburgh, whom you say was very friendly. Have you yet been to Brisbane Road to sit in the Justin Edinburgh stand?
1: No, so was, since he's, I've, I've been teaching out in China and obviously with the pandemic, I've, I've barely been able to get back to England at all. So I've, I sort of heard of it. Of his death, and I think I was already out here, um, and just sort of through again through people on Facebook that I'm sort of keeping in touch with, I, because he'd, he'd been on a there had been a Tottenham sort of get together do weeks before yeah. his death. Not, it, 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 yeah, it must be. I saw lots of pictures of him, and he was smiling and joking as he as he always was. And there's these pictures with a lot of the old players, and then it it wasn't long after that at all that sort of the news came through of what happened
0: to him. And it was wretchedly sad. I remember Justin Edinburgh. He, he was sent off in the League Cup final, which I was, I was stuck in Austria. Yeah. I was skiing. So we followed what was going on. I think we flew back on the day. Uh, but I did go to the 2002 League Cup final. And for so many years, I thought Robbie Savage played in that game. I just got my cup finals mixed up. But Savage got Edinburgh sent off. And still got a loser's yeah. medal. Uh, Robbie Savage won the FA Youth Cup a couple of years after you, by the way, as a, as a reminder that you had, did win the Youth Cup, but that's more for the second half with yeah. the glory. I didn't realise Ray Clements could have done what Peter Shelton did and played up until his body would have stopped him in his late 40s. But he moved from player immediately to coach. And yes. it, it, you, you seem to write in the book, he wasn't just a good coach, he was a good human being.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think he's one, he was one of those people, completely larger than life. Complete, like he'd turn up training, and you'd hear him turn up. He was loud. He was, he was so full of energy. And, you know, everyone, even on a cold morning when everyone was sort of sitting around at the training ground sometimes and not wanting to go out because it was so cold, and he was going to do running and everything, and then Clem would come running down the stairs, and you'd hear his booming voice, and he'd run out on the pitch, um, shorts up, pulled up higher calling everyone out after him, just pure, pure love of football. And his training sessions, he used to take the goalkeepers for training sometimes. They'd be out there hours after everyone else had finished training and he'd still be, and he'd be joining in with it. He'd be Mm -hmm. doing, you know, not quite as much as they were, but he'd be diving around himself and throwing himself at the ball. And again, he's booming voice. And yeah, he was just, he was just one of those people who was absolutely infectious and he, but he just, he just knew so many things. Like, there were so many things that I kind of learned from him football-wise in a really short amount of time. It's just it, it, almost in passing, he'd be doing a team talk kind of thing and he would say, someone would say something, he'd just go, well, if you're there, you, you just help the ball on. You don't head it back in that way. And it would just be something really simple, as in, you know, if you're on the far post, you just help the ball in its way. You don't head it back towards your own goal, or back towards the middle. But little things like that, that he just knew, and he didn't even know that they were little gems. He they just knew all this stuff because he, he had so much experience and so much love of the game, so much knowledge that he couldn't help but pass things on to, on to you and build your confidence and just improve you as a player. He was absolutely fantastic for me from day one to, to the day I left. He was one of probably the, the few people, I would say, who
0: always, always had time for you, no matter what. And we, sh- we should say that you were told that you'd be released in 1993, but you were told months, months before. So you felt like an invisible man and your Spurs career goes out with the biggest whimper and it's it's wretched. And you, you recount this in the book. I'm not going to go over it here because it's far too sad. Um, but did you, yeah. I know Stephen Clements came in at Spurs because I saw Clements play for the first team when I used to go to Spurs. Um, and it's, it's no coincidence that Stephen has gone into coaching, nor that Ian Walker was such a good goalkeeper. I suppose, A, if you're a son of a goalkeeper, as he was with Mike Walker, whom you also may have met.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah I met him a few times. Because yeah. it was around the time when he had unbelievable success with Norwich as well, yeah. when I was there. So, yeah.
0: Bayern Munich and all of that. Um, but Ian, yeah, you, yeah. you say Ian Walker at 17 was already the real deal.
1: Yeah, Definitely. It was. It wasn't a secret at, at the club that he was probably the best keeper at the club at the age of sort of seventeen. It, it was just a matter of time. It was maybe that physically at the time. I mean, he never. He never got particularly big. He was never like you know like a bulky kind of keeper, and that might have cost him a little bit in the end, perhaps. But he was just a, a cut above anyone there. And I mean, that year when we when we were like really successful, he was just on probably a different level to any other goalkeeper I'd ever seen. He was unbelievable. It, and, he, and he used to, he had so much confidence, but as a striker, I, I used to hate it. I used to just try to get on the other team to him in training. <laughs> but it's it kind of, it's such a confidence game, football, and everyone's so competitive. I used to really hate him doing that as well. You know, like, it's kind of, it's like a little anecdote now of him counting up how many shots he saved. But I would be fuming inside because I just was so desperate to score. And there he is, just sort of casually. You hit a ball and you think that it's going in. You've caught it really well. And then he just kind of flicks out an arm and almost casually puts it around the post and then says 11. And you'd just be inside just boiling, just, oh, right, I want to get to the front again. the next go. I've got to get it past him. Got to shut him up kind of thing. But yeah, he was... And, you know, there was games that he won probably pretty much by himself for us that year.
0: And, yeah. y- and yet... He isn't held. If you've got a whole Premier League Hall of Fame, which they have started belatedly, it's the thirtieth, thirtieth year since football didn't begin. Uh, and you, Tony yeah. Potts, played when the Sky Money started coming. And I would argue that it was Bosman that modern football properly began because players could take control of their careers. And one of the players who used Bosman was Solzier, who might. Yeah. You'll never beat Sol Campbell. Could you beat Sol Campbell? Um.
1: I didn't play up against him too many times. He was, I think he was two years younger. So he kind of played above himself. So he trained with the youth team that was below me. So the times when I played with him, I would have been training. Uh, he, he was sort of brought into the team to play, but didn't train with him. So when he played for the reserves, for example, or when he played in the first youth team, which he did a few on a, quite a few occasions, he would have come straight out of the second youth team's training session. So I didn't actually play against him very much but also at that time he was playing kind of more of a midfielder he'd been a centre forward and he dropped back and around about the time when I was there he did he he was only playing the odd game at centre half when needed but was spending more time in centre midfield he was kind of like um like a Yaya Toure kind of well probably a little bit more a little bit quicker than him kind of thing you know a big athletic person in midfield who could do a little bit of everything. Win his headers, he could win his tackles, but you know, played the ball quite nice and easily, and a bit of everything he had in his game. It was just no one really knew where he was going to end up playing because he could also he was he was a decent centre forward as well. I think that was where Tottenham first kind of brought him
0: in. And uh, Sol's biography is in the football library. I should also add that programmes and videos, a video of the ninety-one FA Cup final, that will be in the football library. Uh, club magazines. The memoirs of every uh, player. This is crazy. The only player from the England team who beat Germany five one, getting better and better and better. Do you know this? The only player in the starting lineup who hasn't written a memoir. We've mentioned him earlier. Yeah, would it be Nick Barnby? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. From what you write in your book, he's a top top player. He came through Lillehall. He was a wide player. Yeah, from Hull.
1: Yeah, well he, he kind of. His reputation came before and so I'd never met Nick, but I'd heard loads about him for like six months. I think i have been in the club before he was there, cause he was at Lillyshaw, and he, did, he didn't he did used to come back in breaks at Lillyshaw, because I guess he would go home to his family in Hull. So we didn't really, I didn't see him until he actually pretty much started his apprenticeship the a year after I'd been at the club. Was one of the first times. So I've mainly seen him maybe once or twice up to that point. I should but say. I'd heard about him.
0: Lillashall is like Namaste, you would live on site.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. You'd go to school there and then afterwards they would do training um, with the coaches at Lillashall and go to sleep at Lillashall, then go back to the school. Just a constant training and going to school kind of thing.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because in my book about the Youth Cup, which I'm not here to plug, but I'm just about to finish it. So it's definitely on my mind. And I do mention your book, Losing My Spurs. I just say, for a proper view of what it was like being an apprentice, you must read the brilliant Losing My Spurs, Gazza, The Grief and the Glory by Tony Potts. which fantastic. It's a big contender for book of the year for me. And there's some big books coming uh, later in the year. Um, But that moment when Howard Wilkinson closed down Lillishall and gave the club's what I call mini Lillishall status because they were kind of satellites around the country um, because there was no centralised FA school. It turned into St George's Park, uh, which was the National Performance Centre. But you played against and with all these boys who came through Lillishall. You also mentioned in the book that you had to have a bit of arrogance um, to be a very good footballer. Did you sense that, or did you feel that the Lillishall lads were kind of institutionalised in the way that, as we'll talk about in the second half, you weren't?
1: Yeah, and no, I think that's, I think they they were very close to each other. That all the boys who came out of there still are. I still um, I'm in touch with a couple of them still, and they still get you know they have get-togethers and everything. But I I've, I always felt that they got kind of almost overcoached a little bit. Some of the ones who went to Lillishall it kind of pushed against them a little bit, so some of their like, natural ability kind of... I always felt they got dampened a little bit, whereas some of the people who, who didn't go there and came in a little bit later, they kind of managed to maintain things a little bit more, it seemed, to, it seemed like that to me anyway.
0: Whereas, as we shall discover after half-time, uh, the childhood of you, Tony Potts, was completely different.